Romans chapter 16 and verse 1. Paul writes and he says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Sincrea, that ye receive her in the Lord as becometh saints, and that ye assist her in whatsoever business she hath need of you. For she hath been a succorer of many, and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my helpers in Christ Jesus, who have for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Salute my beloved Epinatus, who is the first fruits of Achaia unto Christ. Greet Mary, who has bestowed much labor on us. Salute Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Salute Urbane, our helper in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Salute Apelles, approved in Christ, and salute them which are of Aristopolis' household. Salute Herodian, my kinsman. Greet them that be of the household of Narcissus, which are in the Lord. Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa, who labor in the Lord. Salute the beloved Persis, which labored much in the Lord. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. Salute Asentricus, Phlegon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren which are with them. Salute Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus and all the saints which are with them. Salute one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division in offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good works and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. For your obedience has come abroad unto all men, and I am glad therefore on your behalf, but yet I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you today. We're grateful for your love and your mercy in all of our lives. And I pray now for this opportunity that you've given me that you would speak and bless and work as only you can. We all have needs today, Lord, and I pray the Holy Spirit would just delve deeply and deal thoroughly with us. I, I pray that you would, you would give us the things that we have need of in this session together. We'll thank you and give you the glory and the praise for it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. I attended first grade in my hometown of Savannah, Georgia, at a school called Isla Hope Elementary School. I'll never forget when my first grade teacher, who was a refugee from Czechoslovakia, took us into the library, and I was surrounded by books. It began a love affair on that day that has never ended under this. The first book I ever checked out and read was a book called Davy Crockett. And I read about the king of the wild frontier, the man from Tennessee, and I began to read about him. Second book I checked out was a book on Robert E. Lee. And so being a Southern boy, that appealed to me quite greatly. And two of the great heroes of my life became uh, Crockett and Lee. And boy, it just, it just ignited a love affair of history uh, in my life. I grew up in Savannah and it's a it was a, a city that had great Revolutionary War history behind it. Still the cobblestone streets down by 
uh, River Street are there and the wrought iron work throughout the, the old city of Savannah. And then as a child, I, I grew up playing on battlefields where men died. And I remember digging up handfuls of, of many balls and I've got a, a cannonball from a 12-pound Napoleon and belt buckles and, and uh, things like that. And so it, 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 it just was an interest that has stayed with me to this day. One of the things that I learned about history that is that it indelibly stamps its mark upon places. Man, I've stood at Gettysburg back with my back against the trees and looked out at the copse of trees where Buford and his men stood and thought about Pickett giving the charge for what's become known as Pickett's Charge. And I, I never stand there, but, but what I'm overwhelmed with that sense of history. And I've, I've walked places where great men have, have, have made their mark. And it, it's been a fascinating journey through my life. I've got on my phone actually a, an app that is history here. And wherever I go, I, I push it in and it shows me all the historical points and and uh, around the area where I'm at. And, 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 and places are marked by their history. The moment itself may have vanished into the mist of memory and the people uh, have died and gone on, but the place carries the reminder of the great things and the events that took place there. And from the sand dunes of Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, where uh, the Wright brothers made their historic flight to the shores of the Pacific where William Clark stood and said, oh, the joy uh, ocean in sight. Our nation is marked by geographical places that are significant to our history. From the down-home uh, uh, Appalachian Mountains to the greatness of the Purple Mountain Majesty of the Rockies and from the Gr Grand Canyon to the Great Lakes and Glacier National to the Everglades, America is marked by incredible geographical and historical places that we hold dear. Historical markers are all over every road almost in America. One of the things that always excites me is when I cross the Mississippi River. You know, I just, I don't know, there's just something about Old Man River. It's such a significant place and probably of all the geographical landmarks in America, of all the geographical places, it has really more significance, if you think about it, than any other place in America. It's, it's the river. It is the river. It is Old Man River himself. And uh, Native Americans made their life there and, and, and found their sustenance from that river in the early days uh, when our country was being settled. And, and even today, 92% of our agricultural uh, exports come from there. And 78% of the world's exports in grains and soybeans come from uh, the Mississippi River Basin. It's the world's fourth largest drainage basin. It, it drains 1,245,000 uh, um, square miles. And that includes all of 31 states. Uh, uh, and and are all in, are part of 31 states and two Canadian provinces. So it's 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 incredible. That's 41 percent of the landmass of the continental United States of America is drained through the Mississippi River Basin. It's like a giant artery. It's like a just a giant life-giving artery that flows through the heart of America. And, uh, and gives life throughout our, our nation. If you took a bottle and you threw it in at the headwaters at Lake Itasca in Minnesota and allowed it to float unencumbered from there all the way to where it dumps out into the Gulf of Mexico, it would take three months for it to arrive. Unencumbered. It's, a, it's an incredible place. At its largest point, it's 11 miles wide. And at its deepest, it's over 200 feet deep. 
And yet a number of years ago when I was preaching a revival in, in Minnesota, the pastor said, would you like to see the headwaters of the Mississippi? Well, in my mind, I'm going to St. Louis. I've eaten on a riverboat there. And, and again, every time I cross the Mississippi, I'm overwhelmed with the history of it. And, and uh, you know, Lewis and Clark and their Corps of Discovery that begin there, fascinating, fascinating part of our nation's history. So my mind, I'm immediately just thinking about the Mississippi River. And as we, as we drive to this place, we get to this basically this stream that's dumping over the lip of a lake and it's about 6 to 12 inches deep and about 30 to uh, 40 yards wide at its widest point and, and, and I'm looking at this and that's the Mississippi. It's where it all begins. It's the, it, it's the beginning of it. At Lake Itasca, there is a, a flow rate of 6 cubic feet per second. You go to the end of it and the Gulf of Mexico it's 700,000 cubic feet per second. From six to 700,000. That's a staggering difference. And so as I stood there and watched that, my mind began to work and I began to, I began to think to myself, what is it that takes this little babbling, rippling stream at Lake Itasca and by the time it reaches the Gulf of Mexico, turns it into the mightiest river in all of our continent? And it's tributaries. It's tributaries. The Minnesota River, the St. Croix, the Cannon, the Zumbro, the Black, the Lacrosse, the Root, the Wisconsin, the Rock, the Iowa, the Skunk. I mean, on and on. You, the, the Des Moines, the Missouri, the Ohio, the Illinois, the White, the Arkansas, uh, the, 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 the Black Bear River, the Yazoo, the Red, and numbers of others. Twenty-six rivers make their way into this little insignificant, six inches deep, 30 to 40 feet wide, 30 to 40 yards wide, and they take that little stream, and when they're through adding their flow into it, it's, it's an incredibly powerful river. Not only that, but there are 7,000 streams. Not as big as a river, just, just a smaller inflow that come into this stream and yet these 26 rivers and these 7,000 streams, when they add their power and their might together, they make the greatest river on our continent. Now what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 16, he's, he's, I wrote out beside that tributaries. Paul is talking about people that God has brought into his life, people that have flowed into him and added their, their, their knowledge and their love and their personality and their influence. And, uh, and so each name here of all of these people, they represent an individual that helped Paul along his way. And it is God in this chapter emphasizing for us that just like the Apostle Paul, you and I cannot do without the influence of others. We're not islands unto ourselves. We need people in our life that, that are, that, that, that are uh, tributaries, people uh, that help us. And, and, you know, we don't know a lot about these people. All we know is they impacted Paul. We know a lot about Paul, but we don't know a lot about these other people, except the little bit that he tells us. And the main emphasis is Paul saying, uh, I could not be who I am were it not for these people that laid their necks down for me, these people that invested themselves. They're my fellow prisoners. They're my helpers. And so Paul began, as we know, as Saul. He was a bit of what we would call today a terrorist. He went in and hijacked families and, and hauled them off. And, 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 and we understand 
that, that Paul w- w- was feared, but then uh, that blind convert from the road of Damascus sits in a darkened room and a man by the name of Ananias walks across the, the room and puts his hand on him, the human touch, And he says to him, Brother Saul, and suddenly his eyes are open, and now Saul uh, has all of these people throughout a period of time in his life uh, that that influence him and that flow into his life, and Saul is changed into the iconic Apostle Paul. God used people. Somebody might be hyper-spiritual and say, well, all we need is the Lord. Well, that's not true. That's just not true. What we need is the Lord and whatever the Lord chooses to bring into our life. And God brings into our life. He's chosen to use people and and, and to bring them in. And and, and we're not nearly as independent, I think, as we like to think we are. We need others. We need each other. And and, and, and God gives us these tributaries that, that help us. Not only that, but we need to be tributaries. As people have invested in our life, just like Paul gives us a list of people that have flowed into his life and changed who he was into who he is. Now you and I also, as people have invested in us, we need to invest in others and and work uh, to, to, to give our influence and our help to help them along the way to becoming what God would have them to be. Now that's challenging, I know. Because the Bible says, He that walketh with wise men shall be wise but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. So there is, a, there is a degree to which we have to be careful about who flows into our life. We'll talk about that. But nonetheless, it, it is God's way and God's plan uh, in allowing us to have others to flow into our life and, and us to return that investment. Let me say, first of all, just quickly, everybody, every single one of us, we all have tributaries in our life. And so Paul's list that he gives here it's not, a, it's not an exhaustive list of everybody that God's using in the world. You know, I, I think sometimes we, we pull our walls in so tight, we narrow so tightly that we don't realize that, that in, in God's kingdom, uh, He's chief and God will use whoever He wants to use. He never has once sought my approval. And so, so there, are people, there are people that aren't influences in my life, but God's using them. They don't flow into my life, but nonetheless, God uses them. And, 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 uh, and that's certainly God's business. What, what, what Paul is giving here, he's giving a list of people that have been tributaries in his life. People that have advanced him uh, and, and helped him. And, and so if Paul wasn't an island unto himself, I, I'm certain that I am not. And if Paul needed good and godly people in his life to make him the person that he that God intended him to be, I, I think that I certainly do. And, and if God used the influence of others to mold him into, into the apostle that we love and appreciate, we need those people also. Years ago, I preached in Union City, Missouri, and while I was there, they took me on a tour of the uh, Chrysler plant outside of St. Louis, and I'll never forget going there, and they brought in this, it was just a shell of a vehicle. It was a painted shell that, that uh, was ready. It was held up by some magnets. And then there, there was uh, the, the, the chassis. And as we walked down that assembly line, there were guys there that had a specific reason just to add a part. And, and I won't go into all the detail, but it was everything from the taillights to the seats to the wiring, the dashboard. I mean, it, I mean I, the gas pedal, the whole bit. Somebody was there to put that part in and install it. And we followed that all the way down that assembly line and we got to the end of it. Of course, everything was bolted and welded on and we were able to see a finished product as it rolled off the assembly line. 
And I thought to myself that when we're through with this life, the sum total of who we are will be the bits and pieces that God brings into our life from the different people that have flowed into our life and they've added something to us and, and, and we become what they have helped us along to become in little bits and pieces of the influences that God brings. Let me say this also to you, and that is that inflow determines outflow. Inflow determines outflow. And so it's essential that we note that Paul uh, completes his list of, of, of tributaries, and then he goes immediately into a warning. And, and I think we can't, we can't bypass the warning. It's there for a purpose. And so in verse number 17 of Romans chapter 16, after giving us a list of everybody, at least the ones he wanted to give us, that had impacted and inflowed into his life, Paul now says, now, verse number 17, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. And so immediately after listing his tributaries, Paul says, now, I just want you to listen to me for a moment. You be careful about who you allow to flow into your life. Be careful who it is you allow to influence you. And in the Bible, in, in Proverbs chapter 2, talks about discretion. And we have to have enough discretion to realize that, that, that when it flows in, it's going to become a part. The, the tributaries that we allow into our life, they, they, uh, they add to who we are. Good, bad, or indifferent. If you allow someone in, that, that is going to surface at some point in your life. And so we have to be careful. I, you know, I love reading behind G. Campbell Morgan. I don't know how much you know about him, but I love him. I had a group of young preachers ask me a while back, they said, what's the difference in the, you know, why is it okay for, to read some of the older guys? And, and, and we get some criticism about, about some of the younger contemporary writers. My observation is men like, like uh, Morgan and, and, and some of those older guys they had one intent, and that was to impart the scriptures to you. I read behind him and some of those guys, and man, I want to tell you, they're just trying to teach you the word, and you, you just get, you get soaked in with the things of the Lord, and it's a blessing. Sometimes, sometimes some of the newer writers, there's more of a, an agenda, more of a philosophy that they're trying to impart. So even, even in our influences in our life and in our ministry, which we're preparing for, and we're all in some point of preparation and maybe a little further down the road at 63 than you are, but that's okay. God's still developing and working in my life. And, and I just want to, I want to make sure that, that, the, that the tributaries that I allow in my life are going to help me become who God wants me to become. I want to be careful not to open myself up to, to influences that might get me off track and, and that might get me off course. And, and so I have to be careful with that. So Paul's giving that warning there. Mark them which cause divisions and contrary to the, notice the word, the doctrine. And so I want to say third of all that, that the Bible has to be our filter for the tributaries we allow in our life. It's the Bible. Okay, It's, really, it's not hard. You know, you just, it's, it's the Word of God that it ought to be the filter for everything we do. All of our friends, all of our associations, all of our entertainments, everything we do ought to be filtered through the book. And so we determine who influences us and we choose our tributaries by the doctrine and by the filter of the Word of God. It was certainly that way in the early church. Matthew chapter 16, verse 12, then understood they, his disciples, he said, beware of the doctrine uh, uh, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 
I'm teaching in my church now a, a series that I've entitled Beware the Doctrine because there's a lot of doctrine floating around out there that, that's not healthy for our spiritual life and, and certainly not our church life. And so uh, he tells them, um, he talked with them about the leaven of bread, but, but they realized he was talking about the doctrine of the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees. And, and then Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and he said that ye henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight and cunning uh, craftiness of men whereby they lie and wait to deceive. And he writes to Timothy, his son, in the ministry in the first letter in chapter 4, he says, Till I come, give attendance to reading and to exhortation and to doctrine. And then he says again to him, take heed unto thyself and to the doctrine, continue in them. In his second letter he says, but you have fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering and charity and patience. It's interesting that in that list of attributes that Paul gives, the first thing that he lists is doctrine. It's before manner of life. Doesn't mean that people that don't, uh, that aren't doctrinally sound, it doesn't mean that they're bad people and they're wicked people. It just means that doctrine, doctrine is the thing that we filter their influence in our life. How far doctrinally helps me determine not their manner of life, but their doctrine, whether or not I allow them to flow into me and influence who I become. All scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof. It's over and over. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. And so Paul is teaching that, that as he gives his list of tributaries, he's saying to these guys, now listen, these are the people that have influenced my life, but just be careful that when you allow people into your life, that they're not going to steer you and, and bring into you things that are not doctrinally sound. This book, if you'll allow it to be the filter of all your relationships and all the influences, I'm going to tell you, uh, it'll never steer you wrong. It is the Word of God, and it's important. Let me just say this also, as we sort of tie a knot in this. And this, just, listen, just take some time. Take some time to thank God for your individual personal tributaries. We all have them. Now, I don't know who they are in your life. I was saved at the age of 12 at a, uh, at a Bobby Richardson crusade in Savannah, Georgia. My uncle Frank Pruitt asked me to go here. I went to hear a baseball player that I admired. I played second base at that time, and, and I loved Bobby Richardson. And he was coming to town to speak at the old Bull Street Baptist Church. So, man, I packed my stuff up and went with my uncle Frank. I went to hear about baseball, and I did for about 15 minutes. Then all of a sudden, he made a statement. He said, everything that I've ever accomplished on the ball field means nothing to me in comparison with my relationship with Jesus Christ. And I remember so clearly as a 12-year-old boy, the Spirit of God arresting my heart because I had never heard that statement before. I'd memorized scripture and been a part of Christmas plays. But that, that night, I, I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And what a, what a tributary he's been in my life. I'm so grateful for him. I was able to FaceTime with him a little while back and he was just talking with tears in his eyes about how grateful he was that he came to Savannah, Georgia that day. If it was for nobody else, it was a 12-year-old boy that needed him to flow into his life. And so I want to just tell you, without, without the influences of our life, my pastor Cecil Hodges, my youth pastor Ray Turner, the people that have, that, have, that have been a part, that have flowed into me and have made me who I am today, without them, where would we be? I would be about 6 to 12 inches deep and about 30 to 40 yards wide. 
And so their influence, their ability to love me and, 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 and add to my life has brought me to the place to where I am today, and I'm grateful for every one of them. Now, I don't know who yours are, but you do. Thank God for your mom and dad, your pastor, the people that have invested in your life. Be grateful for them because God has brought them to you to help make you who you are today. It was a hot day on May the 19th, 1967. F-4 Phantoms were taken off from the deck of the Kitty Hawk uh, aircraft carrier. And one of those F-4 Phantoms was piloted by Navy pilot Charles Plum. He was flying his 75th mission over North Vietnam. It wasn't long into that mission that, that out of the corner of his eye he saw the, the, the white plume of a surface-to-air missile arching up toward his aircraft and suddenly uh, that, that explosion rocked that plane and, and inverted it, flipped him upside down. Charles knew that unless he righted the plane, there was no way he would survive. And so he fought with the stick and did everything he could to get the plane uh, righted and so that he could um, uh, somehow eject from it. And, and as it plummeted to earth, he was able to do that, reached up with both hands and, and was able to um, pull the ejection shield over his face. And immediately he was ejected out of the plane at a force of 18 Gs, 18 times the force of gravity, a force that would have torn his arms and legs from his body had he not held them close. Just a few moments later, the chair dropped, his seat dropped, and then he felt that, that, that soft warmth of the parachute as it opened up. Floating down, he began to look for a place to land and of safety, and he realized that if he was captured, he needed to destroy his his, uh, his, his flight log, and so he began to take it out and rip it to shreds and just let it float out over the, the area. And he landed in a, a rice paddy there, no safe place to really land, and suddenly he was surrounded by farmers that were, began to beat him with their hoes and farming instruments, took him and put him in a pen with, a, with an ox and tried to get the ox even to gore him. He was only 50 miles from Hanoi, and so it wasn't long to where that pen was filled with North Vietnamese soldiers and they drug him off to the Hanoi Hilton. He had no idea that that was the beginning of six horrific years of imprisonment and torture. And after, one, after 2,103 days in captivity, in a prisoner exchange, Charles Plum came home. He had no idea what he would do after six years as a prisoner. How do you get back to the normalcy of life? But what, what happened to him being one of the first POWs returning to the Midwest, he became a bit of a celebrity. And people began to ask him to speak. And so he began to stand in auditoriums and they wanted to know, how do you survive six years? And so he talked about the thoughts of his family and his faith and and his friends and how that those thoughts and those memories were things that helped carry him through. And he spoke all over America. One day he was in a restaurant outside of Kansas City and he and his wife were eating together and he looked across at a table and, and saw a man that just kept making eye contact with him and, and, and studying him intently. And he, he just thought, man, I don't know, this guy's just zeroing in on me. And he told his wife, he said, that guy keeps looking over here like he knows me. Sooner or later, the man got up and left his table and came over and said, you're Charles Plum, aren't you, sir? He said, well, yes, I am. And he said, you, you flew a, a F-4 Phantom off the deck of the Kitty Hawk 
years ago, did you not? He said, I did. And he said, you were a prisoner of war for six years, weren't you? And he said, well, yes, I was. And Charles said he began to think in his mind, he's, been, he's heard me speak. Man, he's been in the crowds where I've spoken, and, and, and he knows my story. He knows who I am. And he looked at the man sort of quizzically, and he said, well, just tell me, how do, how do you know all this about me? And he said, I have followed your story and prayed for you for all six years that you were imprisoned. And Charles looked at him and said, well, why? And he said, because, Mr. Plum, sir, I was the man that packed your parachute. I'm the guy that, that packed your chute before you made that mission. And when I heard that you had been hit, he said, the one thing I wanted to know was, had I done my job? Because if I didn't do my job, you stood no chance of survival. And I followed your story after I found out that you made it down. And I felt a bit tied in with you and responsibility with you. And he said, I followed you all those years. And Charles Plum said he became so overwhelmed with that. He went back to the hotel and he, and he talked with his wife. He said, I wonder how many times I passed him. I wonder how many times I walked right by him because I was a pilot and he was just some guy on a deck below sitting at a wooden table folding parachutes. I did not even notice who he was. But come to find out that unknown, unnamed man that I had no idea even existed was responsible for saving my life. Now the reality of the matter is we've got people we wouldn't be here if it were not for them. It's not about us. It's really not you know, we're, we're so, we're just not self-made people. We're little bits and pieces of people that have flowed into our life. And the call to us is for gratitude to them like Paul exhibited, but then not just to stop there, but to come a part of somebody else's life and make a difference in somebody else's life. I'm always reminded that I will probably never change the world, but I can change somebody's world. I can flow into somebody's life and make a difference in them.